This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. At 26 Shirts, a different Buffalo-themed design is sold every two weeks. 52 divided by 2 is 26, hence the name 26 Shirts. Here's the best part. For every shirt sold, a donation is made to either a local family in need or a worthy charity. Since 2013, their designs have managed to raise and donate over $650,000. Head over to 26shirts.com and see what cause needs you this week. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, everyone. What's going on? How you doing? Welcome to episode 165 of the Moranalytics podcast presented today by our friends over at 26shirts.com. Thanks, as always, for downloading and for listening. If you have not yet subscribed to this future award-winning podcast, please go ahead and do so right now. Coming up on this podcast in just a little bit, I'll be joined by sports anchor and reporter for Spectrum News, John Scott. We'll talk about his life and his career, some sports media topics, the usual interview format on this podcast. Again, I'll have that for you in just a few. But right now, I'm joined by recurring segment guest, my man, Aaron Quinn from Cover one, talk some Buffalo Bills. What's going on, buddy? How you doing? Yeah, man, it's not the best time to join you after a loss, but I'm doing all right. I got, I got a beer down, and uh, it feels a little bit better uh, after a beer. Yeah, I hear you, man. You know, first and foremost, it's just a, it feels to me like a, a big-time blown opportunity, not the end of the world, certainly, but, you know, at home, a chance to go to 6-1 and one for the first time in, like, 26 years against a team that was, pretty much decimated with injuries, not just injuries, but injuries to key players, guys like Deshaun Jackson and Jason Peters, Nigel Bradham, uh, Vontae Maddox, just for starters, not to even mention Darren Sproles, but, you know, they still couldn't get it done. And it's a, a one-loss game, 16-game season, but and I don't want to lose sight of that either, okay? They're 5-2. and two. This isn't a doom and gloom podcast, and I know you're certainly not going to be doom and gloom with this all, but to you, does it feel like, you know, a big time blown opportunity. What do you think? Well, it would have been a great opportunity, like you said, to get that sixth win uh, to really kind of solidify the people like uh, Eagles reporter Michael Kiss, who was on our show this week, who called them a paper tiger. I think it would have been a nice opportunity that and to kind of set this stage nationally that this is a team that should be talked about in the big picture of the season, though. I don't think it's a big deal. 
I think that they stack some nice wins together. I've always had this game as a loss since the schedule came out. I think the Eagles are a team that's probably underperformed the most out of anybody that the Bills have played this year. They have a good roster, even with all those injuries you talked about. I think they, on paper, they still have a better roster uh, top-heavy wise than the Bills do. So it's a good team. They were super desperate for a win. They couldn't drop three in a row. So playing a desperate team... Uh, you know, is it, a really hard thing to do in the league. They needed this win and they came out and, and really we'll talk about it a little bit more, but they established the line of scrimmage on both sides. And it's so hard to win a game if the other team's dominating the line of scrimmage on both sides. Well, let's talk about that. Let's start right there. More specifically with the run defense, which against the Eagles, you know, it was admissible. There's no other way around it. Philly ran for yeah. 218 on the ground. They're like 5.3 yards per attempt there. And they didn't do anything elaborate with the running game. You kind of mentioned it, just the trenches. It was like they just yeah. bullied the Bills in between the tackles. Nothing fancy. It's not like they picked up 70 yards on one, uh, you know, reverse or anything like that. They would count on the rushing stats. They just man-on-man beat them. And we kind of saw a little bit of this last week as well against Miami. Not to this extent, of course, but a little... You know, creasing the armor a little bit in the middle, the interior part of the Bills' run defense. What do you think? What's the problem? What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. It's really been an Achilles heel of this Sean McDermott, Leslie Frazier defense dating back to their first year. I remember that that month of November, and uh, it was referenced in the post game by Lorenzo Alexander here, that Saints game. Uh, this was not as bad as the Saints game uh, of that season, but had that same kind of feel where you just can't stop a team from running the football right up the middle on you. So it's, it has been an issue for them in the past. They went out and they got Star Latule uh, to kind of help fix that. He did a little bit last year. I think he played pretty well. The last two games have really been poor performances from Star. I don't know that he's the only issue. We'll really have to take a look at the tape fully to see what the issue was. And I think Sean McDermott referenced that. I, I think that there's probably a lot of issues with technique. I think there's probably a lot of issues with fundamentals. Um, when you get run on like that, those are usually where the issues start up at. But Doug Peterson called a good game. This was something I was worried about all week long. I was tweeting all about it, especially with the way the weather was trending. Uh, You saw it like you referenced last week. Miami was kind of starting to expose that interior run defense problems of the Bills and, and where to attack them. And then you just looked at this matchup. I really like Jordan Howard as a running back. I I, I think he's very underrated in this league. He's a poor man's Frank Gore, uh, in my opinion. And I thought that a guy like that with a team like this could really expose that unit. I didn't know that Miles Sanders would also uh, be contributing to that. So that just made it even worse. Luckily for the Bills, I hate to see anyone go out with an injury. He did go out with an injury, but he was a big playmaker for them. And you're right. Nothing was really elaborate from them in the run game, except for that first play, I think, or one of those first few plays out of the half when they ran that. um, It was like a draw to Howard, but ended up going to Sanders for a large gain uh, and really flipped the field right out of half. So outside of that, though, they really just kind of ran it right at this defense and just a mixture of uh, being dominated at the line of scrimmage and poor tackling where, you know, two yard runs or what should have been a two yard run turned into a four yard run just made for a really long day for these guys. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm really glad that you mentioned Star Little A because look, we know how run stuffing defensive tackles work in Buffalo. It's not about statistics. You're never going to get an evaluation on a guy like Star by looking at numbers. I get that. Again, we've been around in Buffalo a long time. You got guys like Ted Washington and Pat Williams and Sam Adams off the top of my head. Guys who never put up big numbers, but their presence was felt out there. And you could see that they passed the eye test. 
on Sundays. For me, right now, star ain't it. Now, I know he was getting yeah. pu- he was getting pushed for playing time by Harrison Phillips before the injury, which is, by the way, turned out to be a more significant injury than a lot of people thought it would have been. You know, Jordan Phillips is getting more time, and he's putting pressure on the quarterback. He's getting the stats and numbers. When I'm talking about run defense, that's turned out to be a pretty big key injury. But anyway, with Starr, getting back to him, he's just not getting it done right now. And we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more later on in the podcast. But my thought is this, okay, the trade deadline, this is out on Tuesday. So actually the trade deadline is today when you're listening to this. And all the talk has been, and who knows, maybe by the time people are hearing this, something has already went down, but that the Bills need to trade for a wide receiver this and that with the wide receiver. And I'm not saying necessarily that's not the case, but as far as I'm concerned right now, if the Bills could go out and they could find themselves a run-stuffing defensive tackle, not a sack machine, but a guy who could really clog those gaps and do a better job against the run, I'm all for that being priority number one, even more than a wide receiver. I don't know what your thought is on that. Yeah, I have a few thoughts. I think, uh, you know, Kyle Pecco has come up from the practice squad and has flashed at moments, but really lacks consistency. And I think that's another yep. thing that's hurting them with the depth of this team. And it yep. might be time to bring Vincent Taylor up. I know that he was a guy that they got off of waivers and they were pretty high on. Um, I don't know if this is kind of the time to say, hey, let's get this guy up as far as depth position of the this uh, roster goes. But yeah, if there's a guy available that is an upgrade, I think that it, it's obviously a need. I don't know what kind of assets you're willing to part with now for a veteran at that position, knowing that Harrison Phillips is coming back and knowing that you can probably address that uh, also in free agency next year or in the draft next year. So it's a fine line to walk as to how you address that position. But I, I think you're right. I, I think the it's sexy to say, let's go get a wide receiver and ball out on the offensive side of the ball. But I, there's a few positions uh, that I would rather see them address. And I think both of them would start at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. I think that I would like to improve those more than anything. Wide receiver seems pretty fine to me. Um, although Duke Williams has been silent since his first game coming in. I think we talked after his first game, he had a good first game. He's kind of been silent since. So I, I'd like to see some improvement from a third wide receiver, but John Brown's been playing fantastic. Beasley's playing fantastic. So I don't know that I need somebody to come in at wide receiver. I was asked on Twitter, fixing the offense or getting a guy in the offense more important. What's the most important thing? And I said, the easiest thing right now is to fix the defense. The defense has the continuity. They've shown they are a proven commodity. They can play dominant defense. Fix that first. The offense is going to take time. They have nine new starters, a young quarterback. It, there's going to be some lumps uh, pretty much all year long. It's going to take some time. The defense shouldn't be playing like this. We should hold them to a higher standard. So I'm with you uh, as far as whatever it takes to get this defense fixed. Let's do that because that's really the key to this team winning 10, 11 games this year i'm gonna be walking kind of a slippery slope right here so being a little bit delicate but i'm sure throughout the week there's going to be plenty of criticism about a 2018 buffalo bills first round draft pick but i'm going to tell you right now in my opinion it's not josh allen it's tremaine Edmonds. okay and maybe maybe we're disagreeing on this and that's cool if we do but i've looked at him the last couple weeks and especially this week i'm Look, nine tackles on the stat line looks okay. A tackle for a loss. So what? Okay. I know he's a fan favorite. He's a media darling. I like him. I have sung his praises many, many times on this podcast this year because he has looked fantastic at times. And he does have elite athleticism. But that dude, to me, and if I'm wrong, you tell me, man. I don't think he's nearly physical enough out there right now 
He is getting mauled. And I can't wait. I typically am not a film guy. I'm not much of a stack guy. I'm just old school as hell. I mean, you tell me and I, and if you have credibility, I'm going to take your word for it, okay? But I personally want to watch the film from this game because it felt to me every single time a guard, a center, a tight end, or a fullback, whoever it was, once they got their paws on Tremaine Edmonds, he was out of position and out of the play all the time from what I saw on Sunday. I feel like it's time to puff the brakes on this guy. I was just talking about him on this podcast two weeks ago. It's a guy who very well could be a pro bowler right now this year. And I, it's time for me to pump the brakes. I feel like it's time for people to pump the brakes on him right now. He's got a long way to go. You very well may disagree with that. What are you thinking? So it's tough, right? We It's kind of the same thing I think we say with Josh Allen. He's 21 games into his career, so he's played more football than Josh Allen, but he plays a super important position. This is a guy that did not play middle linebacker in college, so he's come in. This is his first 21 games as a starting middle linebacker for an NFL team. The physical traits are there for the most part. Um, I, I think it comes down to fundamentals uh, for him at times. And when you're getting dominated at the line of scrimmage, that has a trickle down effect throughout your team. And we really have seen that the last two weeks here with the Bills defense. And I think that it impacts the linebackers. And he is not the guy yet in his career where if the line of scrimmage is being dominated and say the Eagles are pushing them back right from the start of the snap. I don't know that Tremaine Edmonds is the type of linebacker that can play in those kind of dirty lanes like that really well yet. Um, I'm not giving up on the guy. I mean, yeah, maybe pump the brakes, I think is fine as far as saying that maybe he's not a pro bowler or anything like that. But I think his development is fine. He's going to take some lumps along the way. This is a very young team, uh, young quarterback, young middle linebacker. Uh, they have a young running back behind Frank Gore. I know people want more touches from him, but you've got to bring these guys along in the right way and develop them the right way and that's really what 2019 is about so he's going to take some lumps i want to see how he responds but the linebackers as a whole they both kind of struggled today milano had more or not yeah they struggled um milano had more flash plays in the game but i think yeah. that edmonds Edmonds got lost in blocks. Milano got lost in blocks. You saw that in the screen game. You saw that in the run game. So, yeah, the film's probably not going to look fantastic for the linebackers uh, when when the All-22 comes out. But that's okay. I'm not super worried about it. I think that Bobby Babich is a, a fantastic head coach. If any position coaches were ever going to get into the Hall of Fame, Bobby Badges is a guy that should be considered. So I think that he'll get those guys corrected and, and show it on film. But it really does start up front for me uh, at the line of scrimmage. And it's it makes it tough for everybody else when the line of scrimmage is being dominated in the way that it was today. There's one more position that I kind of want to hit on. And I could also talk about several other players who made mistakes or didn't have great games. Uh, Jack Lawson had some good moments for sure. He had a sack. He played well, but he also made a couple mistakes. I thought Trent Murphy was pretty non-existent, to be honest with you. But uh, who else? Oh, Trey White. He he played all right. Um, Levi Wallace got beat a couple times. Not as bad as Miami, but not much better than Miami. Wasn't a great week for him. But the guys that I wanted to talk about it again. This isn't me blasting these guys. I'm still very high on them. So we're just so we're clear on this is Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. This was not a very good week for them. They were out of position a couple times. They just, I don't know what it was, man, if they were either out of position or just looked a step slower. I don't know what was going on this week, but not a very good game from them. They got caught a couple times. That long run by uh, Sanders for a touchdown early in the third quarter that kind of blew that game open. Micah Hyde in particular, he took the wrong gap. I mean, I, I suppose you have to get that confirmed on film, but it looked like he did. 
just didn't look like a great game for the safeties for me. Yeah, he he might have taken the wrong gap on that, and it looked like Poyer took a pretty bad angle yes, uh, to he make did. the play and then and then try to chase him back down. So, yeah, it's going to happen. Um, definitely probably not their best performance when we see it on film, and that's okay. Uh, this all week long, like I said, uh, I had the game as a loss for the bills going into the season. Um, they're a good team. The best kind of loss is to have a loss against an NFC team. So there's probably a lot of mistakes. I think at every level of this defense, you don't give up the kind of game that the bills gave up. If, if you're having not having mistakes at every level of the defense, but yeah, I, I agree with you that I'm not concerned about Hyde and Porter. I still think they're one of the best safety tandems sure. in the league, but they're going to have struggles. And I st- still think, right back to my linebacker answer, that does start up front. This defense plays the best. When we saw them playing the best this year, they were playing, everybody was doing their one of 11 and playing as a unit. And when they're in concert like that, it's a really beautiful thing to go back and watch the tape and watch everybody be in their assignments. When you start to uh, get some of the chinks in the armor and guys are out of assignment here and there, and that starts to kind of snowball. I think that's where you start to see other guys pressing and trying to make plays and other mistakes are starting to happen. You start to lose your discipline. You start to lose your fundamentals. Uh, And I think that might be what happened when we look at the tape this week and see the bills. And keep in mind, though, they played a good team with with good players on the other side of the ball. But Doug Peterson's a heck of a play caller, and he called a really good game today. He had them off balance pretty much all day. Uh, he he was able to do quite a few things to really keep that ball moving. Uh, you saw him convert on a lot of third downs, and that's not something that has happened on the Bills a whole lot. They've struggled in the red zone, but they've been one of the best teams at forcing punts and forcing three and outs. Not today. Doug Peterson called a really good game and he showed what a good play caller can do against a good defense if they're not living up to their fundamentals. So to put a wrap on the defense, I don't think your level of concern with them going forward is very high. It sounds to me when it comes to your thought is it's just more of a of a bad day at the office as opposed to the defense being exposed. And, you know, are they potentially a little bit fraudulent going forward? You're not nowhere near that level of concern, right? Well, I think there's there's definitely uh, issue with the run game in this defense and whether or not that they can fix that quickly. We saw that, like I said, in the first season, we saw that stretch in November where they just got dominated for four weeks straight. Can they fix it before it's four weeks straight? Because I know a lot of people are looking at the Redskins as a rebound game, and I agree that it has the potential to be. But if there's something that they are good at, one, they're playing with a lot of effort for Callahan right now. And two, Adrian Peterson will run up the middle on you. He's lost a lot from where he was, but he's still a pretty darn good running back in this league. And if you let him do what Jordan Howard did to you today, that's going to be a tough day against the not very good team. So they really have to respond this week, I think, and show the world that you know what? We got punched in the mouth a couple times, but we're going to correct the issues. I think they have the coaching staff to do it. I think they have just enough leadership on that side of the ball to do it. And I think that the young guys really do buy into the whole system. They watch the film and they try to make the right, uh, do the right thing. So they aren't making the same mistakes over and over again. It's going to be a real test and seizing the de- season defining thing for this defense next week. They should come out and dominate that game. And if they don't, then I think you can start to maybe ring some of the alarm bells of, of them being exposed and not being the dominant defense we think they are. All right, I'll tell you what. Let's leave this here for a minute. I want to get to my interview with John Scott from Spectrum Sports. After that, we'll hook back up. We'll talk a little bit about the other side of the ball and try to figure out what we should be most concerned with going forward for this week, if anything at all. So here's a quick word from our sponsor, followed by John Scott, and then I'll be back with more Aaron Quinn.
Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless, and with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data, coast-to-coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico, plus text and data in over 210 countries worldwide, all with the best phones or bring your own that's pretty awesome get the best user experience on mobile at pulsecellular.com all right my guest today is a sports anchor and reporter at spectrum news in buffalo where he's now been for nearly six years i'm talking about john scott what's going on john how you doing dude great how are you thanks for having me on i'm doing good it's great to have you on i kind of I want to go to the same format that I like to like my go-to format with sports media people on this podcast. And that's more about instead of talking Buffalo Bills today, I want to give fans just an opportunity to know more about you, your story, where you come from, your takes on certain things and, you know, just stuff like that. So let's kind of go back all the way to the beginning. Now you grew up near Cleveland, a suburb. What was it like for you as a kid growing up near Cleveland? I'm assuming you were a big sports fan. I'm assuming you were in the Cleveland teams as well. Yeah, it was uh, probably similar to the upbringing of many people here in Buffalo, where extremely passionate fan base, extremely passionate city for their athletics and sports teams, even though they consistently let you down. Yeah, and that was that was the challenge, certainly, of doing that. Whether it was, I you know the. I was born in the mid eighties. So the tail end of the eighties, whether it was the shot or the drive or the fumble, they're like the beginning portions, but I don't remember them as vividly as let's say the Indians losing the world series in 95 and 97. The Browns moving is obviously a major thing that was right in the heart of where my, my love for sports was really starting to blossom. So it, it was, it was great in the sense of, the, the Indians in the 90s were 455 straight sellouts, and we were part of the season ticket group. So it was like having a golden ticket anywhere between four and eight times a year where it was this big, great thing with those teams are so exciting. And then obviously, I'm the exact same age as LeBron James, and we graduated the same year. And growing up when I'm a sophomore in high school, he's a sophomore in high school, and, and kind of seeing his rise at the same time, knowing that this guy is such a larger-than-life figure and he's literally two or three months younger than me, that was that was something that was interesting. But it really kind of builds you up in the sense of your, your strength in dealing with sports teams because, again, until 2016, at least on the professional level in Cleveland, uh, it, it was all about the disappointment and how you continually almost expected it and in turn dealt with it. Now, when it comes to LeBron James, it's one thing, I mean, he was a, a global sensation, certainly a nation sensation, even as a teenager, but being in Ohio that close in the same state of him, it was a different level. I can't imagine how much hype that must've been for a high school kid playing basketball at that age. I mean, he was literally as big of a superstar as many players in the NBA when he was in high school. It was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy, and his heist, he was, I believe, really one of the first, or if not the first, to have 
a regular season high school basketball game on a national level and aired on ESPN. And I know, you know, guys I was friends with in high school would, they'd go to, they were played at like Cleveland State's arena and they would go there and it would just be like almost a college atmosphere or even a Cavs atmosphere. Or I'd go to Cavs games and they were terrible and you'd see LeBron there and everyone's eyes flock to him. Could this be the guy that they, that they get to, save the franchise and i remember going to the auto show with some group and club i was a part of my senior year and remember walking past lebron and and the rest of his teammates that everybody knew their names as well and i'm like i just walked and basically brushed shoulders with a guy that again while just a couple months younger than me is no is just in this completely different stratosphere it, it it truly was remarkable to be in that area with him coming up and then the vibe and the uptick it brought when the Cavs won the lottery, knowing that the kid from Akron was going to come and try to save the team in Cleveland. How, when you were a kid growing up a Browns fan, how painful was it? to see the team leave and go to Baltimore. I think that was 1995. I want to say 95 or 96. One of those two years, you were very young, but I'm sure you remember that. How painful was that as a kid? I can't imagine that in Buffalo, growing up a Bills fan and seeing the team leave, it would rip the hearts out of so many people. Absolutely. And that's why when I first came to Buffalo in 2014, there still was the uncertainty. I'd been here two months when Ralph Wilson Jr. passed away. And then all that uncertainty with what was going to happen with the bills. I could relate to that because I lived it when I was 10 years old. I remember vividly where I was the moment I heard the Browns were moving to Baltimore. I was in a Kmart parking lot in my hometown with my mom listening to the radio. And it was, you'd heard like this was potentially something that they were going to try to do, but they're the Browns. Just like anyone here would say they're the bills, like fans flock. It's, it's like a religious experience in Cleveland going to the Browns games. And there's no way that a team supported so stoutly by thousands, an entire city and region could it's, it was unfathomable to think that they would leave. Yeah. And I remember Again, exactly where I was when it happened. I remember it being a daily story on the news how the city and the government in the city, uh, the mayor, everyone was rallying and doing everything they could to try to stop it. And then ultimately, they couldn't. And yes, they got a team back and it came in 1999. But it also was added to the heartbreak that in 2000, the Ravens won the Super Bowl. And it was with, and it was led by a general manager, Ozzie Newsom, who is an all-time Browns great. And they started making those draft picks of Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis and Ed Reed. Those started happening a year or two after the Browns had moved. So it's not unreasonable to think that the Browns would have won the Super Bowl maybe five, six years after the fact that they moved. And that kind of whole stretch was challenging and I admittingly since we didn't have a football team like even in right before they moved like I was I was a Cowboys fan I loved Emmett Smith and 
they were kind of the team I gravitated to because the Browns were gone. And um, I, I know that that was the case with some other people. And it just hasn't been the same really since, including this year, where they come back in 99, the hype is real. Then they get smashed by about 40 by the Steelers. And we all know kind of how the Browns have gone for the past 20 years. Yeah. As a kid, did you play youth sports? Yeah, I played pretty much everything. My my favorite sport and top thing I focused on was baseball. I played that in the into high school, and uh, but you know I kind of I kind of did it all, and I continued to do it all. But yeah, growing up, I, I did just just about everything: football, baseball, uh, a little bit of basketball, uh, but really focused on baseball. I read that you were really into music in high school. Tell me more. What's that all about? How did you get into music? That's, that is correct. I actually was voted the most musical person of my graduating class of like 450, 500 kids. Wow. My mom, my mom is the, was she graduated or retired about a year or so ago was a music teacher growing up. And so music was kind of in the genetic pool and so, yeah, I, I did choir and theater. And as I got older, I was pretty good at it and just continued to do that. So, yeah, I, I played sports. I was into sports, very knowledgeable with sports. But the majority of my time, especially come high school, was actually between theater and choir, which I, 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 it's funny because no one now would ever assume that. And uh, but. You know, it is possible to be talented and enjoy that side of things and still be talented and, and knowledgeable when it comes to sports, especially in the teenage years. That's, that's a tough thing for kids to sometimes understand. Yeah, for sure. No doubt about it. Did you ever have aspirations maybe as a teenager being in the theater and music that that might be something that you wanted to pursue as an adult, obviously? You ended up in sports, but as a kid, did you think that maybe, you know what, maybe I want to be in theater. Maybe I want to be in music and, and make a living doing it. My junior year of high school, kind of when you're trying to navigate your college decision, I was between, do I go the path of maybe trying to be a music teacher like my mom, or do I want to try to be on television doing sports as an anchor and reporter. And I, I kind of went back and forth between the two, but ultimately I'm like, I'm like, you know what, let's try to do this one. Cause I think I can always go back and do the, the music one if I'd like. So yeah, I thought about it and it wasn't necessarily a lack of talent, but I'd seen so many talented people that even I considered more talented than I was not pursue it at even the collegiate level because it's it's it there's similar industries where i mean there are so many people that get into it and you have to be so good and it's challenging so ultimately i decided to go the, the sports television route uh because i i thought that, that would that would be uh better and maybe more fun and present more cool experiences and so that's the one I did. And, and I don't, I don't regret it at all. I can, I can still do some music stuff on the side, but I don't think I'd be able to do, do the, the things that I'm able to do on the sports side of things. Had I, had I gone the music route, you know, you bring up a really good point talking about music. I feel like with sports and journalism, 
don't get me wrong, luck's involved too. You also got always got to catch a break. But I feel like hard work and talent, you'll get to where you want to go to where music, and you kind of said this, there's so much out there. There's a much bigger element of luck. Like there's so many amazing musicians that are probably as good as some of the most famous people we hear on the radio today. They just don't get discovered and people don't even know about them. You would see these shows like American Idol and The Voice and some of these kids, man. I mean, they sing, like I said, just as good as, as the big time stars out there. But it seems like with music, there's kind of like an element of luck involved more so than even say sports media where you got to get lucky. You got to catch a break. You got to get discovered no matter how good you are. And I carry over the things that I thought I was good at and enjoyed doing music and theater into my job now. I mean, it's almost still a performance-based thing and, and having energy sure. and speaking and, and doing that, being able to ad-lib and things like that, memory. So there's a lot of things, and I've noticed through my travels in the industry, a lot of people in the television broadcast world have a musical background and i think there's it's no coincidence that people who are comfortable being in front of people and performing and being on stage i think that it's it's no coincidence that those people translate well into the broadcast world you went to the university at dayton for college why did you go there and were there other schools that you considered going to or wanted to go to or was it pretty much you knew you wanted to go to dayton and that's what you were really locked into Absolutely not. Dayton was my safety school. It, it was a school I didn't even apply to until much later in the process. Back then when I was applying in like 2002, online applications were very rare. Most of them were, pa most of them were paper applications. You mailed them and yeah. things like that. Well, Dayton was online and it was free and it was very easy. And I, I knew that I was probably going to get in and I had applied to Ohio state. That's where my dad went. I'm a huge Ohio state fan. And I hadn't heard anything for like five, six weeks. And so I was getting scared of, well, what if I don't get in, you know, what if I get waitlisted, which I didn't think was going to happen, but I just needed to cover myself. So that's where I applied to Dayton. I had also applied to Indiana and I didn't get in. I'd applied to, Ohio University, they have a prestigious school of journalism. I don't think I applied to Syracuse because I knew I, I wouldn't get in, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, so it came down to Ohio State and Dayton, and I, and I ended up getting into both. And I took a tour of Ohio State, and it was great. And at the end, they asked for questions, and I said, well, where's the television studio? And they said, well, you're in it. And it was a computer lab. And their, their TV program, amazingly enough, for such a large university, was really not, not that built up. And then I went to Dayton. And while their program doesn't have all the bells and whistles, certainly have a Syracuse, an Ohio University, a Ball State, a Mizzou, Arizona State, I, it was still good and was something that allowed me opportunities maybe earlier on than I would have found elsewhere. And honestly, the, the thing that drew me was uh, my best friend's brother went there but dan patrick went to dayton yeah and so i'm like well if it's good enough for dan patrick i understand this was years and decades ago but if it's good enough for dan patrick you know what maybe it's good enough for me and i went for a visit with my best friend and we stayed with his brother and i loved it and i i still had 
thoughts maybe going into my first semester of, all right, let's get your grades up. Then maybe you transfer to Ohio University. But I was there for about a week, not even. And I said, I'm, I'm never leaving here. And it, it turned out to, without a doubt, be the place I was meant to be. And, and I, I love that place more than, more than maybe anywhere, uh, anywhere out there. So by the time you were a high school senior and getting into the college process, you were pretty locked into what you wanted to do. There wasn't really any confusion on your end. You knew what you wanted at that point, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I felt fortunate because I knew friends who were not sure at all. They really didn't have an idea. They went in without declaring a major uh, or they'd go business, which was just so generic or things like that. But I, yeah, I knew what I wanted to do from the very beginning. I met with the TV department at Dayton, like the first couple days and course they say what do you want to do and i said espn and then they you know he laughs at my professor laughed at me and yeah of course everyone wants to do that but um yeah i I was i feel fortunate that i've never really wavered dating back to my junior senior year of high school never really wavered in what my intentions hopes and dreams were to do professionally so after school you you get your feet wet you're doing various things at an abc affiliate and dating and then spent a little over two years as a sports anchor and reporter at WKBN in Youngstown, Ohio. How much did that experience like help hone your craft and get you ready for would be the next phase of your career, which ultimately of course would be Buffalo. Yeah. I I've had an, an interesting path because I would advise anyone doing this to do as many internships as possible. I did not do that. I had one internship the summer before my senior year of college. I happened to intern with the guy I went to high school with in Lima, Ohio. So I like lived in small Lima, Ohio first summer. And ultimately I got a job there, but then my station got bought out after almost two years of being there by our competitor, which actually my coworker now, Andy Young worked over there. So we were friends, but I lost my job. And then I was out of the business for a year as I tried to find it. That's when I ended up at Dayton and I worked in news in Dayton. I didn't even work in sports. And I worked as an overnight photographer working from like midnight to 9am doing new stuff, like sitting in a car by myself, listening to scanners and chasing fires and stabbings and shootings. And I just took any opportunity I could to be on air and my opportunities were limited, but they were enough to build a resume tape, which led me to be back full-time in sports in Youngstown. So it was like a three-year gap of me going as a sports director out of college in small-town Ohio to still being in somewhat small-town Ohio, but I, I had fought my way back. And that's where I think my, my biggest growth was in Youngstown because I worked with a phenomenal staff from top to bottom of people that really showed me how to be a storyteller. Because to that point, my first job, it was me and another kid straight out of school. I mean, we're just fish out of water trying to survive. And then again, in Dayton, I, I wasn't in sports. So for over two years in Youngstown, I was around people who have won awards and Emmys and things like that. And the the focus of that sports department was storytelling. And they really 
showed me how to properly do that while following a, a template of sorts while also being able to express and expand my own creativity, uh, both in writing and visually and shooting and all that stuff. So I, I cannot say enough for the people that I worked with in Youngstown. And it, and it was two plus years that really set the table for taking the step to Buffalo. Um, and that I've, that I've been here now for shoot nearly, nearly six years. I'm with John Scott from Spectrum News. Well, let me ask you this. We talked about Spectrum in Buffalo, beginning of 2014. How did that opportunity come about for you to be able to make the move to Buffalo? It's funny because Teresa Weekly used to be the morning anchor at Channel 4. Yeah, I remember her. And, and she came to Buffalo from my station in Youngstown. And her husband worked in the sports department with me. And we were very, very close. And so uh, when they moved to Buffalo, I actually, before they moved, came up here with her husband and their one-year-old daughter and was looking at houses with them for them. And then a couple months later, after they'd moved up, I came up to Buffalo to visit them. And at that time, I had heard that at the time, YNN had a sports opening. And as I mentioned earlier, Andy Young, who works with me now, was working at YNN at the time. He had started in Lima with me, and we were friends, and we kept in touch over the years since we, we separated, went our separate ways. And I met up with him at Mulder's in downtown Buffalo during my visit with Joe and Teresa, got the idea of, you know, what's this job like? And I applied a couple of days later. And ultimately got an interview and was was offered the job and I accepted it, you know, December or so. And I started in January 2014. So I certainly had trepidation initially of do I want to go the cable route? Because it in this industry, especially five, six years ago, it, it doesn't necessarily have the best reputation in the sense of people think it's a step back because it's not the traditional affiliates. Um, but I ultimately, through talking with Andy and whatnot, felt the opportunity was the right one because I'd worked in smaller markets previously at my first three stops. I was tired of leading a sports cast with Youngstown State women's basketball or high school soccer or something like that. I was ready that the next progression in my career was focusing on professional teams. And that's what made Buffalo so appealing was having the bills and the Sabres here. And that's that, that was the next step I felt that I was needing to take to continue to further my career. Yeah. No question about it. What was the adjustment like for you moving to Buffalo? Now I'm sure it's not as much coming from Ohio as some other guys and girls who come to work in Buffalo from the media like say maybe Marcel Louise from uh, ESPN, you know, spent his life growing up in California and lived in Carolina, worked in Carolina, never really saw snow in his life. Now he's covering the bills for ESPN.com. You're from Ohio, so you're used to weather. is not that big of a deal for you, but it is different. You know what I'm saying? It's still an adjustment, I'm sure. How was that adjustment for you? It is an adjustment, which people downplayed it and said, oh, it's pretty much the same as Cleveland. It is not. It is worse. I will say... I happened to, without even looking at my apartment, I actually had Joe 
Teresa's husband look at an apartment for me. So I moved in and lived in North Buffalo without ever seeing my place. Well, North Buffalo, as we know, it still gets snow, but it's not the same as the South town. Right. Yeah. So it, so it was somewhat of a softer blow, but the first winter that I was here was bad. And that first fall of that I was here. So 2014 fall is when we had November and the bills game got moved. So I, I kind of also got hit with some bad winters to start. We had some mild ones in between. I, I can handle snow. I drive like a, an accord. So it's not the best car in the snow. Sometimes, <laughs> right. sometimes I feel like a jerk when my tires are spinning and I know people are like, what is this, this person doing? But I know how to, I know how to handle myself in the snow. That still doesn't mean that I like it. <laughs> I certainly would prefer as little cold and snow as possible. So hopefully at least maybe this time around, it's, it's more mild for the next few months. <laughs> it's like obligatory that I talk chicken wings for a minute when I have somebody on talking Buffalo sports or just Buffalo period. Did you jump right into Buffalo chicken wings? Because they are unlike anywhere else. I'm sure they're better than Ohio. I'm down here in Florida now. And I mean, it's like, I don't even, I can't even start to compare them, but like, did you get in the wings? Are you a chicken wing guy? Oh yeah. Yeah. What I, are a couple of your, wings. what are a few of your favorite spots? Okay. This is good. Uh, Barbell is number one. And I, I think that's turned into a pretty universal belief. Yeah, it's uh, trendy now. It's become a trendy place for sure. And when I lived in North Buffalo, I, I, it took me a year or two to get down there because it's it's a jaunt. Now I live in Orchard Park and it's 10 minutes down the road. So I've already been there like two or three times since I moved down to Orchard Park at the end of May. So that's nice. I'm here. But when I lived in North Buffalo, down the street, my number one go-to, and I think it's sneaky, although this is starting to get more traction, is Kelly's Corner. I yeah. love Kelly's Corner. Um, that that will always be my ride-or-die go-to spot. I mean, I was there all the time when I lived in North Buffalo. I literally walked there. Good spot. And, and so I, I love that. And then through Tim Graham's recommendation, <laughs> Elmo's, Elmo's, I would say. I would say those those are my top three. Without question, I I have not hit 9-11. That's, that's kind of next on my list. I see Macy's is starting to really pop off as a place to go to. And uh, I will admit that maybe more so based on service than the actual food, I have not had great experiences at Gabriel's Gate. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of turned off on them, but still willing to give it maybe one more chance to sway me back in, in, on the good side of things because I know how popular that place is. All right, man. Props to John Scott right now for being real about everything. Everything's not all roses. Sometimes some of these wing places can disappoint you. 9-11, you definitely got to hit. The problem is you never know when they're going to be open. That's, yeah. the, that's the big pain in the ass part. They're literally number one on my list. And you mentioned Macy's. I interviewed them, or not interviewed them. I reviewed them in August. I had no idea how good those wings were. I was blown away. This little tiny pizzeria I mean, you literally, if you and Heather go there, there's, you better be lucky to get the one table that they have in there because it's a takeout place. It's a tiny little place, but God, the wings were absolutely incredible. But anyway, before we get to the mini lighting round, I got a couple like relationship questions that I want to ask you. One's, <laughs> one's about actually the guys that you work with, the guys and girls that you work with, the media. I've had several Buffalo-based Bills reporters on this podcast, whether it's TV, radio, print, whatever. And it seems for the most part, 
that you guys have good relationships. You know, you travel with the team on the road. I'm sure you've gotten to know a lot of reporters from around the league at the stadium or whether you're on the road, whatever. It's pretty safe to say that the Buffalo sports media contingent is more close-knit as a whole. I mean, there's always exceptions in every town, but as a whole, it seems to me like the contingent in Buffalo sports with the media is closer than a lot of other towns. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I've been to a lot of smaller towns where it's, you know, my first job, like when I met Andy Young, I mean, it's a bunch of kids straight out of college making peanuts that you're living in a town where there's not much to do. So you kind of bond over that. But it's a it's a different vibe to where now people have families or they're they're older and things like that. It, it is remarkable. I mean, I started like two, three years ago uh, a basketball game that we we played Sunday mornings, and there was about up to fifteen of us media guys that would play basketball together. And then there's the fantasy leagues. And you're right, when we're on the road. There is, and this this bleeds also into into Rochester as well, especially in regards to the Bills and traveling. Oh yeah, it, it, yep, yep. there's there's a there's a pretty consistent group of us that will go out to dinner or just hang out and things like that. And it is it is cool because when I first started traveling, I didn't really know a whole lot of the people, and so I kind of was in more like tag along mode. Yeah, and and now we've all established again whether it's just a normal road game or the combine we're around for a week. And, and you said it, 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 it goes across all the lines. It's not just TV, TV. It's not just print, print. Um, I mean, you're certainly going to have your groups because it's not like 20 people can all <laughs> hang out with each other at all times. But uh, it's not like I, I, I feel confident in the fact that I, I have hung out with and spent time with, whether it's here in town or on the road with pretty much any and every single person in the media here in Buffalo. And I, I do think, I do think that's pretty cool and unique. Well, I get to the mini lighting round to wrap up. You're engaged to WGRZ sports reporter, Heather Prusak, who by the way, is way better looking than you are. I mean, you're, a, <laughs> no you're doubt. a handsome dude, but she's much better looking than you are. I want to hear the are story. You, you? <laughs> How did you guys meet? I want to know the details. How did you guys hook up? How'd you meet? We met at an Amherst High School football game in the fall of 2014, and we both remember the conversation well for different reasons because we were both covering it, her for Channel 2 and me for Spectrum, or I guess it was Time Warner at the time. And, we, you know, we just introduced ourselves You're on the sideline. It's at a high school football game. It's not particularly exciting, and no, right. offense, to Am no offense to Amherst, but theirs are particularly not that exciting either. And um, we just start chatting. Where are you from? She said she went to school at Syracuse. Well, this was months after Dayton had beat Syracuse here in Buffalo in the NCAA tournament to advance to the Sweet 16. So I, I was covering the game. And it, it, to this day, is one of the greatest sports moments in general and certainly of my career to witness my alma mater make their first Sweet 16 in 30 years and be in the locker room and at the game. It was awesome. So when she says she went to Syracuse, I naturally just bring up, oh, well, I went to Dayton. And she says for her senior year, she was at the game as well. And it is like the worst moment of her college experience. 
watching the basketball team at Syracuse lose her senior year and get upset. So it was ironic. She says now, like she hated me instantaneously because <laughs> I, because I was so proud of this moment for my alma mater and how it crushed her and hers in her senior year. So that, that, that's how we, we met. And then certainly we just continued to, to be around each other uh, covering whatever it was around town, whether it was Bill Sabres, high school, UB, whatever. And we just, we just developed a friendship. And then um, I think it was 2017 or so we, we, we started dating and uh, got engaged last almost a year ago and get married in just under eight months. That's awesome. It really is. That's a cool story too. <laughs> By the way, you guys absolutely crushed it last week for Halloween or over the weekend, I should say. I, on your Twitter, in fact, I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Um, Talladega Nights, the two of you, that, that was absolutely awesome, man. It's a it's a great video. She is huge in the Halloween. Our, our townhouse is to the nines with Halloween stuff. She wanted to put it off, frankly, in August. And I said at least get us to September. So the house has been decorated Halloween for now, almost two full months. So she's, <laughs> she's been, so we've, we've been dating now for, this is our third Halloween together. The first one, we were Mr. And Mrs. Incredible. And we won a costume contest at Mr. Good Bar. Then last year we were space jam. We repeated as champs at Mr. Good Bar. And then this year we decided to host the party. So we were Ricky, Bobby, and Cal shake and bake. That was awesome. But, but we were not able to make it to Mr. Goodbar to try to defend our title for a third straight year. Uh, but the costume still was a hit. Yeah, for sure, man. All right, so we're going to end mini lightning round. What I'm going to do is just ask you a handful of random questions. Not a lot of deep thought required. Kind of like rapid fire style, whatever. Whatever the first thing you think of, that'll be your answer. You good with that? Yep. All right, let's go. Favorite all-time athlete? Ken Griffey Jr. Who's the most entertaining fellow sports reporter that you know? I, wow, this isn't rapid fire. There's been so many. I'm going to say Andrew, wait, you said sports or just someone I've known in the industry? Uh, I, I said sports, but you could answer any way you want. That'd be cool. All right, I, I will say Andrew Buck Michael. He was a meteorologist I worked with both in Lima and Dayton. He, his name is Andrew Buck Michael. I'm sure you can figure he's entertaining. And then Joe Alicio, <laughs> Teresa's husband, still to this day, even when I spoke to him on the phone today, entertaining as all heck. What's a nice, relaxing activity that you like to do for yourself that has really nothing to do with sports? I like to work out. People may not think that that's relaxing, but it, it is for me. And I love also just sitting on the beach. That is relaxing. I think everyone can pretty much attest to that. Sure. What's your favorite city that you visited? Whether it was on a vacation, whether it was a work trip, whatever, any city that you've been to, you're like, wow, man, I really like the city a lot. I love Chicago. It's my favorite with LA second. What was your first childhood celebrity crush that you can remember? I'm going to say Tiffany Amber Thiessen as Kelly Kapowski and Saved by the Bell. Oh, no doubt about it, man. What is a movie that you probably have rewatched more than any other one? Die Hard, number one in my heart. 
Name a TV game show that you feel like if you were on it, you could potentially dominate, whether it's a current game show or a one from the past. Oh, I love, uh, I love family feud. I don't know if I could dominate, but we actually are station one family feud at the wing wing festival this year in Buffalo. So maybe that's it. You know, I, I think it was last week. I had Kristen Ledlow on. She's a NBA anchor and reporter at NBA TV and TNT on Turner. And I asked her that question and I didn't do my homework. She actually was on family feud before with the NBA and TNT crew and they won it. So that's kind of a bad question to ask her. <laughs> All right, last couple here. And when I normally ask this someone, they don't really have an answer because they suck at it. But I'm going to assume that you don't because you're a music guy. You're on stage right now, okay? Instead of doing this interview with me, we're at a bar having a couple of drinks and karaoke's going on. And you're a really good singer, so you're going to grab the mic. What song are you looking to sing that's going to really get the crowd on their feet singing along, whether it's a a party anthem, whether it's a slow song, whatever it may be, what would be like your signature karaoke song? To get the crowd going, I like to do This Is How We Do It from Montel Jordan. That's okay. a good one. Um, others just that usually do well are, especially in Buffalo, Slide by the Goo Goo Dolls. And I like doing Vanessa Carlton, A Thousand Miles, or Genie in a Bottle by uh, <laughs> Christina Aguilera. What about Heather? Do you ever get her up there to sing? Will she sing? She One time, a group of us media folk went out during training camp a few years ago, and she, she did a couple of them. But she's a huge Backstreet Boys person, so she'd probably try to do anything Backstreet Boys. Is there anyone in the sports media that you've worked alongside with, that you've ever heard them get up and sing a karaoke? Oh, yeah. Uh, Sal Capaccio loves doing some Sinatra. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I mean, there's a lot of media in general that are pretty good. Kaylee wants a meteorologist with us. Her and I do summer nights from Greece yeah. and uh, and slay that. But, uh, yeah, Sal is, is the one who loves karaoke maybe as much as I do in the sporting realm. All right, second last question here. Who's your favorite Twitter follow? And it can't, you can't answer with Heather. It's got to be somebody else. <laughs> if you could only follow one person on Twitter, if Twitter were taking away all the people that you follow, but you could only keep one, who would it be? Whether it's a person or uh, an organizational handle. Rex Chapman, without doubt. Yeah. That guy, his, his block charge videos bring me so much joy and laughter on a daily basis. Uh, if I if I can only go to one, I'm sticking with with Rex Chapman. Isn't it crazy that in this generation, he's better known for that than being an incredible college basketball player at Kentucky? Exactly. I mean, and it's also incredible that I don't even know why, but I quote tweeted him once. He's followed me back ever since. And it's like one of the highlights of my Twitter existence. <laughs> All right, last question. And this one's a little more difficult. Might not be quite so rapid fire, so it might give you a couple extra seconds to answer. But you could have three dinner guests from any era at your house tonight over for dinner. Any part of history, dead or alive, doesn't matter when. Dinner, maybe a couple drinks, whatever. Three people at your table tonight. Who you got? Oh, boy. Um... Well, I do love Dan Patrick. He's he's my idol in this industry. It, even the, the Dayton ties are certainly there, but I, I just think he set the tone with SportsCenter that really planted the seed for me. So I'd go with him, I think. Okay. Uh, so he's one. 
Um, man, I want to think of someone who has some incredible experiences. Uh, wow. I need to get a president in there just so they can tell me all the cool secrets. So, uh, I don't know. Give me, uh, give me W because he's a heck of a sports fan with that groove in that, that pitch after nine 11. So I feel like he could, he could give me some serious knowledge and things that I want to know about. And, um, let's see, probably a musician of some sorts. Again, tell me some crazy things my number one musician that i love is michael jackson but i don't want him at my table he's, he's kind of too weird I, I don't need actually <laughs> i don't i don't feel like the conversation would be good so right. I, I i don't know maybe like give me steven tyler i'm sure he did some crazy stuff and he seems <laughs> a little a little crazy yeah that, i'd probably go with that 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 or justin timberlake but timberlake's not as seasoned with the wildness um, I feel like I need someone from like, you know, the seventies to kind of really lay it out there for me to tell me how, how, how rip roaring and wild things got on the road. <laughs> so Steve Tyler, George W and Dan Patrick. That's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone give John a follow on Twitter at John Scott TV. Of course, check him out on spectrum news in Buffalo. Thanks for doing this, man. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a blast. Hi, I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the podcast about broadcast. Every week since 2016, we've been bringing on broadcast leaders to talk about their experiences in radio, what they've seen, and where they believe it is all going. If you live and love radio, subscribe to the Sound Off Podcast with Matt Kundal wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm back with Aaron. Let's talk a little offense here, and let's start, of course, with Josh Allen. Has to start there. Key play of the game to me, okay? It's third and two. Buffalo's got the ball at their own 28, minute 53 left in the half. Buffalo's up 7-3. Allen runs a sweep to the right side. A call that I very strongly disagreed with, and I know Twitter got, got him in an uproar on both sides of the fence there. But anyway, regardless of the play call, it's got to get executed, whatever the call is. He gets stopped. Hit by Brandon Graham, fumbles the ball, loses it. Philly gets it at the Bills 24. It leads to a Carson Wentz touchdown pass. And bam, just like that, it goes from 7-3 late in the half to they're down 11-7. That touchdown comes with 25 seconds left. Again, bad play call, in my opinion. More on that in a second, by the way. But Allen, look, at the end of the day, you got to hold on to that ball. And this, the, to me, this was the single biggest play of the game. He fumbled three times. He only lost one, but it was a big one. You know, if he stopped for a loss there, does he get the first down? They're punting, wins at their back. It's almost asserting that they're going to go in the locker room up 7-3. to three. You just can't do this, man. And you want to be a successful NFL quarterback. I know he has flashes, but you can't turn the ball over, man. That was a big, big, big turnover. What do you put on this game? Like, when you prioritize, why are the Bills to a two-loss team now instead of one? Where does it fall with you when it comes to Josh Allen? based on how he played Sunday. 
So I think if people just look at the stats in the box score and they see the amount of fumbles that he had, I think that's kind of where I have an issue with looking at the stats versus looking at the game and the tape because the, the two of the fumbles don't matter a ton to me. John Feliciano got beat up and, and burnt by Fletcher Cox. That's going to happen, and it was a strip sack. Maybe you want more pocket presence from Josh Allen. I don't know, but we recovered that. The other one was kind of in garbage time, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. So the real big one was that third and two. Uh, designed run and I hope that we do get a chance to talk about the play call a little bit later because I think we do disagree there but as far as the moment in the game it doesn't matter what the play call was anyone that has that ball needs to take care of it in that situation you you can't turn over the ball in your territory really at any point in the game but when you're up heading into half the idea behind I think the play call whether or not you agree with it I think the idea was let's run it here if we get it fantastic we can take a couple shots if we don't we're going to punt and get out of this half with the lead and for it to go entirely in the opposite way is the worst case scenario and there's a lot of people out there on Twitter I've argued with over the years that are, are big into the analytics and and say momentum doesn't matter. I challenge them to watch this game and tell me that momentum isn't a real thing and doesn't matter because they brought this team back in the game. The whole game shifted. The Bills only had a seven to three lead, but it felt like they were going to take some momentum into the half. Uh, and in a game with the weather the way it was and the way the game was trending the way it was, if you felt pretty good about it. After that, it really just unraveled. And then, like we said, against the defense, they, you know, they came out, they got the ball and they they drove down the field pretty easily. And after that, it just kind of spiraled out of control. So that was a super pivotal play in the game. And Josh Allen has to hold on to the ball. Uh, so you hate to see it. Uh, it's going to happen, though, sometimes when you have your quarterback running around or really anybody running around. Fumbles are going to happen. Interceptions are going to happen. Things are going to happen. Outside of that, man, I didn't think Josh played a bad first half. I thought he moved the ball pretty decently. I know Brian Dable's getting a lot of uh, flack for his play calling today, and I think maybe we can argue about that one play. Um, but outside of that, I think just the Eagles, again, dominated the line of scrimmage in this game, and that is really that's really going to mess up whatever your game plan was going into this game when the other defense is basically two yards into your backfield at the snap of the ball, and that's really how it was from the start of this game. I don't so much have a problem with, Josh Allen running the ball in third and two. I just didn't like the sweep call. I felt like they had eight guys in the box. To me, maybe spread it out, have him take a snap from shotgun, assess the field, where he could go, and then take off. That seems to be where he's most successful running the ball. I mean, I know he does have some direct uh, design runs that have worked out. I just, I didn't like the call at all. And also, you know, maybe handing off the Singletary or Gore to get you two. I just, I didn't like the call. And there's a lot of things about Brian Duvall that I did not like at all this week. Go ahead. The call though, I get it. I'm all for people, their opinion, your opinion on that. You didn't like it, but it has worked a number of times this season. We've seen touchdowns scored on that third down conversion scored on that. It's something that they do well when they get some of these guys pulling and get a lane for Josh Allen and getting the two yards there. I don't mind the play call. Is there some other play calls that I would have also liked to see there? Yeah, I agree with you. Go for it with Gore, uh, you know, do something like that, but running it up the middle at that point in the game hadn't been successful. They were struggling to run the ball at that point in the game. They had a couple drives 
in the second half where they were able to open up the run game a little bit. But to that point in the game, it wasn't really working. Fletcher Cox was a, a one-man wrecking crew. Their defensive line was really pushing it to our offensive line. So I didn't mind the opportunity to try to get creative and go to the well of something that had worked throughout this season. And uh, unfortunately, it ended up being the worst-case scenario and not just a tackle for loss for one yard and you punt and end up being the actual worst-case scenario. So we're going to talk about it probably a lot more than we should as far as the play call. I think at the end of the day, it was the execution that really made this play the highlight that it became. Well, I'll tell you what, one of the easiest things it is to do when it comes to watching football is to be an armchair quarterback because it's easy to have hindsight on a play when it doesn't work. Now, conversely, I guarantee you, myself, I'll admit it, and probably 90% of of people who criticize the play, had it worked, had he picked up the first down, we're not talking about it. So I do agree with that. You know, it's always hindsight when it comes to criticizing play calls. But I will say this about about Brian Dable. Again, I did not like him this week at all. The game plan itself. I mean, let's go to the, it was a critical point. I feel like anyway, in the third quarter, the bills did struggle to run the football, but they finally got a sense of a running game going. Frank Gore had ripped off 14 yards over two plays. I think he had like an eight yard run and then a six yard run or the other way around, something like that. And then for whatever reason, he comes out after that second run. Now I know he's 36 years old and he can't carry the ball nine, 10 times on a drive. Well, actually, he probably could, but they don't do that. They take him out after two plays, and then they throw the next seven times. The next seven snaps are all throws for some reason after they're finally starting to run the ball good. on The, the first series ended. They couldn't try mm-hmm. a field goal against the win because Hoska 47 yards into the win, so they went for it on fourth down and was unsuccessful. Then they got the ball back, and they went three and out. Three terrible, probably the worst three throws Josh Allen made all year. That swung the game, too. Maybe it didn't swing the game, but it really prevented the Bills from getting any momentum going. I just don't like the fact that they were running the football successfully and then just completely abandoned it because, I don't know, Gore got tired after two carries. I didn't like that. I didn't like Devin Singletary only getting one touch in the first half. And I'm not one of these guys who's out there campaigning saying the guy needs to touch the ball 20, 25 times a game. He's not that guy. I get that. Not right now, anyway. But he should be touching the ball more than once and a half. Cole Beasley... Not utilized enough. I think this guy's a good route runner. He knows Philly well. He's had a lot of success against Philly. Only had seven targets for the entire game. I think he should have had double digits. Just an all-in-all for me, a terrible game plan on, on offense. That's just my take on it. Well, I do think, let me break it down just a little bit because there was a lot to unpack there. I think um, to start, that drive, I agree with you. If we're going to nitpick anything about Brian Dable's game, I would like to nitpick that drive as well. I, I agree that they probably got away from the running game a little bit on that particular drive. It seemed to be working really well. The tough thing is they the most of their offensive success came when Josh Allen was slinging the ball. Yeah, touchdown drive. He was eight for nine on passing. Was was dropping times all over the place. So again, a little bit of it is hindsight that when those those plays weren't working. It looks a lot worse, uh, but, but we call the Dable called a couple good drives there to lead him into scoring position. And he's a good play caller in the sense that we haven't seen in Buffalo a long time where this team is getting long sustained drives. I think the first touchdown was something like nine or 10 plays, 75 yard drive, took some time off the clock like that. That is a good offensive drive. So they, they did show the ability to do that today, even though the wind people said they weren't going to be able to throw. So they had that ability. So I understand kind of going back to that. But I agree with you that I would have liked to see them maybe pounded a little bit more on that particular drive. 
as far as the game plan as a whole, I think a lot of things get ruined in your game plan when your offensive line isn't able to dominate at the point of attack at the line of scrimmage. You saw them come out the first couple drives and try to establish the run, and they just couldn't get anything going. The The Eagles were in the backfield at the snap. They couldn't get the run game going. I think that really kind of threw off the game plan for the rest of the day for the most part. Singletary getting uh, his touches, I... It's a tough one for me because they only ran the ball 12 times in the game, two running backs. So he got 25% of those carries. I think that's probably right about where he should be at this point, four games into his career, right around. I, I'm fine with him getting 25 to 35% of the touches. I think as it goes on throughout the season for him, he'll start to get closer to the 50% uh, as long as he shows that he can be productive with the touches that he gets. Uh, I don't maybe you want one or two more touches in the first half. I'll I'll concede that. But I'm not sure that Devin Singletary is the person yet that fans are hoping that it'll be based on the limited touches that he gets. He does make production with his limited touches, but some of that production is based on they're picking and choosing the spots at where he can get touches and, and setting him up for plays with success where Frank Gore is really going to still be your guy that grinds out the four to five yards of carry to try to get you in a third and short area. So he's going to remain the featured back and probably still have the 60 to 75% of the touches for the foreseeable future. But I, I expect Singletary's to, to move up. But again, when it comes down to the game plan, I think they had a particular game plan, how they wanted to attack this team. And on this day, it just did not work out as they envisioned it to to be. And so I don't know if that's adjusting your game plan in game. I'm not really sure what those conversations are. The film's going to tell us kind of some of that that happened in the second half. But I'll nitpick that one drive with you. But other than that, I, I, I think Dable's probably getting a little more hate than he deserves on Twitter today since we haven't even seen the tape and, and only watched the broadcast view. Also, one last thing here regarding the game plan itself, too. I'm a little befuddled on why McKenzie was um, inactive and Robert Foster was. Now, going into the game, I certainly saw why Philadelphia has a very banged-up secondary. And a secondary that's not very good, even when they are semi-healthy. In fact, I had a nice conversation with Adam Kaplan last Friday's show about how bad the Philadelphia secondary's been. So, in that regards, I get it. But if you're going to... Have Robert Foster active? Shouldn't you be taking shots down the field with him? Or at least get him involved in the passing game in some capacity? If you're not going to, I don't understand it. I mean, the win was bad. Isaiah McKenzie felt to me like whether it was reverses or these short little gadget passes, he had a big play against Miami. I don't understand why he didn't play and, and Robert Foster did if Foster was not going to be you know, a part of this offense. Foster got one target the entire game. And I think it might have been at the end of the game as well, if I'm not mistaken. But regardless, one target, McKenzie's been producing. He's been doing some stuff out there. Why do you think that happened? I don't like that at all, especially considering, again, most of these passes by both quarterbacks were in that 10 to 20-yard range because of the win. All right. Yeah, no, it was interesting for me when that report came out and Foster was not an inactive because he was a healthy scratch, it appeared, a week ago. Yeah, yep. And... And so I think it was game plan specific. I think that that's what they alluded to last week, too. And and maybe it wasn't offensive. 
you know, game plan specific and more a special teams thing. I think that Foster can contribute in special teams in ways that Isaiah McKenzie can't. So I don't know if that was part of their plan today, knowing that with, you know, tricky wins and things like that, that maybe it would be a low scoring game with lots of punts and they want him out there as part of the special teams unit. There could be an element of that to it. But I, I did expect to see a little bit more deep ball uh, shots with Robert Foster. I'm very disappointed in Robert Foster's lack of ability to get on the field, whether it's injuries or mental or whatever it is. I think that's one of the low key storylines of disappointment this year because how good he was last year. I didn't think that he would be able to sustain the type of production that he had in the final few weeks of the season last year. But I thought if he could even cut that in half and just be a really productive fourth wide receiver for this team, that that would be a really big boost with the guys that they brought in in free agency. And he's actually been the least productive of all the wide receivers on this team, even including Duke Johnson, who only had one game of production. He just hasn't been able to get on the field, hasn't been able to stay healthy. And in the opportunity today or uh, in, in the game this weekend, he was not able to do anything with his opportunity to be on the active roster. So I think they hang on to him just because you have the, the contract control. But I don't know that there's a lot of opportunity for Robert Foster to get on this active roster because I agree with you. I wasn't a fan of Isaiah McKenzie this summer. But he, when he gets his opportunities and gets his touches, he at least produces and creates plays for this team. And I think it's hard to to make him a, a healthy scratch and Robert Foster be a guy that you put on the active roster because McKenzie clearly provides more to this team at this point. Yeah, Foster's definitely a big-time conundrum, and um, got to be something. I'm sure it's not because, hey, the coaches don't like him, so he's not playing him. It's got to be a reason right. behind this. I mean, he did get cut last year, came back, came on strong second and half of the year, made some big plays. I think he had like 550 yards receiving. But again, yeah. there, it was one of the worst wide receiver cores right. I could think of in the league. So maybe he was just the best of the worst and he thrived in that scenario. And now that there's some actual NFL caliber talent, it's showing his lack of it and his lack of ability to get on the field, maybe. I know that Zay Jones getting traded, that that would benefit Duke Williams and his promotion, but I also thought that it would benefit Robert Foster. And I mean, very clearly at this point, yeah, it's not. But anyway, big picture here, end of the day, okay? Buffalo's yep. still 5-2. and two. They got Washington Absolutely. at home. I, they should go to 6-2. and two. After that Miami game, I've learned, let's not crown anybody before it yeah. happens. You know what I'm saying? Because I ended up, I I ended up pacing around my living room like an animal, like we were playing New Orleans or New England in the fourth quarter of that Miami game. I just wanted to squeak it out somehow. That's all I cared about was getting that W. But anyway, they should get it, okay? So they should be 6-2 and two at the halfway point of the season. And I challenge anyone out there to find one person who two months ago wouldn't have been chomping at the bit to say Buffalo's 6-2 and two at the midpoint of the season. So that's very important to keep in perspective. Now in totality here, okay, how much did this game against Philly move the needle for you? Are you of the mindset that, hey, Buffalo's 5-2, and two, it's all good, just a loss, a bad day at the office, or are you of like that mindset right now that, you know what, this defense got punked around physically, lots of, uh, a lot of the game, you know, to be honest here, they got, they got beat up and Josh Allen's shortcomings as a quarterback kind of showed themselves again, at least at points. I'm not putting the game on him by any means, but you know, even without a turnover, it wasn't a very good game for him. Maybe it was an okay game, but not very good. But anyway, his shortcomings kind of got shown again. And maybe this Buffalo Bills team is five and two because, you know, it's not fun to say, but they've beaten five pretty like chump stain teams so far. So how much did this game move the needle for you? right now 
a very small percent, maybe 10% or less. I always had this one as a loss, so it doesn't impact my big picture. I guess the only thing I will say is I didn't see it as as big of a loss as it ended up being as big of a dominating performance from the other team. But again, uh, I thought the Eagles would be would be better at this point in the year than they are. Uh, and they were desperate. They were the more desperate team. And when you have a team that's got their back against the wall, that has enough talent, is just a year and a half removed from being a Super Bowl champ, that is a real thing. And, and I think that they came out and, and tried to prove that they're still a contender in the NFC. So I, I'm not going to write off the Bills as a contender. I think that all along they've been competing for the wild card. I think some fans maybe got in their heads that they could run the table and beat everybody but the Patriots. And maybe if the Patriots lost a couple of games, they could be in the hunt there uh, for the division. I think that's insane. Uh, I think there's a level of teams in this league, and I think you got the Patriots, maybe the the uh, I'm not sure on the Niners yet, but I think they're up there. The the Saints, Packers, uh, maybe the Chiefs. You got some of these levels of teams, and then there's another level of guys, and that's where you have your wild card teams. I think that's where the Bills exist. I think all along, that's where I've thought they'll be, kind of in the hunt. I think there'll be two teams that come out of the AFC South. Whatever team doesn't win that division is going to get a wild card. And then I think the Bills are in a really nice position to get that other wild card spot. You saw yeah. uh, some teams lose this weekend that that are going to be in that running with the Bills. I think they're like a game and a half or two games up on all those teams right now. So still a friendly schedule for the Bills. There's going to be a few tough games. They're going to drop some games. I still think they're probably a 10 to 11 win team. And that's a that's a good football team. I, I think Bill's fans should be excited. I think they still have a pretty good football team. They're not a great football team. They're not going to be a 13 win, 12 win team. There's a, a difference there. I know it sounds silly saying there's a difference between 10, 11 to 12 to 13 wins. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot. And in the Bills, I think, are hovering in that 10, 11 team you know win team and then i think that'll be good enough to be the in the playoffs and anything less than that at this point will feel like a disappointment so i do think next week is a defining week for this team and if they lose that then then the alarm starts to sound but as far as where it moves the needle for me very little i think there's maybe some concern and i'm starting to you know we've been beat up for 20 years man so there's always going to be that pit in my stomach that says ah this is the same old bills and they're going to fall apart and this is going to be dick duran all over again they're going to finish seven and nine or whatever uh whatever and and i don't know that that's going to be the case but this is going to be next week's going to be a defining game for this team. If they can come out and take care of business, I'll feel a lot better about them handling some of the weaker schedule coming up and being able to get to that like 10, 11 win mark. I would not have agreed with you about a week ago about Washington becoming a defining game, but based on losing to Philly the way they did now, I do agree with you because you're right to lose to Washington would kind of have that old pit. You can't drop two in a row. Right. And you're having that pit in your stomach, that feeling in the pit of your stomach, where here we go again. This is Buffalo. This is where it all falls apart. Losing at home to an inferior team after losing at home to Philly, that would definitely get the ball rolling with that. And one last thing, too, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I know I was living in fantasy land, but I did entertain the thought of the Bills continuing to win games. Maybe New England starting to lose some because they have played a bunch of chump teams just like Buffalo. And then maybe some else would start piling up. I thought maybe Cleveland could come out off their bye and knock them out this week. But <laughs> obviously that didn't happen. So until this yeah. game, I did entertain those thoughts. But now, yeah, I mean, I'm locked in 100%. I'm in wild card mode right now. And it was a 
okay week for the Bills. I mean, the Chargers, Tennessee, and Indy all squeaked out very close wins against either NFC teams or lousy teams. So that kind of sucks because I am scoreboard watching. Oakland and Cleveland did loss. So, I mean, not all bad. And I agree with you. I think ultimately if Buffalo is going to be in there, I think Indy or Houston, whoever doesn't win that um, in the AFC South is probably the other front runner. But you can't completely dismiss Tennessee yet or even uh, even the Chargers. I want to, but just, I don't know, man. They always seem to get hot. Cleveland's got five losses yeah. now. Even with the Bills losing, they're a full three games in front of Cleveland. And they play Cleveland so they can absolutely bury them by beating the Browns. But, yeah, man, I'm liking Bills and Indy. But regardless of who the other team is or the other competition, I am. I'm completely in wild card mode going forward now. It's wild card mode, and you know what? The Bills beat the Titans, so they have that tiebreaker in their back pocket. You really, They really just have to win the games that they should on paper, and I think that that will be good enough to make them the wild card team. If they drop any more, well, they haven't dropped a game I don't think that they you know, should have definitely won. So if they continue to kind of play in the games maybe that they shouldn't, maybe steal a game they shouldn't, but win the games that you should and beat the teams that on paper you should be I think they'll be in a good position at the end of the year. And I think expectations got a little crazy. I'm with you a little bit that maybe I was thinking ahead and and thinking about stacking up some wins and really making a, a special run here. But at the end of the day, I think we all knew when I made the 11 and five prediction, my Twitter was on fire. People said this is a seven win team. This is an eight win team. So I think they're still on the path of overachieving for 2019. And I really do think that this team has been built all along since Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott came here for the 2020 season to really have, they still have a lot of assets. They have a lot of draft capital. They have a lot of money uh, for free agency. So if you pile a 10, 11 win team and, and make a playoff appearance, and then you add whatever piece that they add on that i think then something's really cooking in buffalo in 2020 all right everyone give aaron a follow on twitter at aaron quinn 716 check out cover1.net online and the c1 podcast aaron and greg do it on wednesdays right you'll have one drop in wednesday night preview in the redskins game yeah, we do Wednesdays and Sundays. So we do a preview of the game and then a post-game show. We usually go pretty close to the end of the game. I'll be at the Redskins game this week, so we'll probably delay the post-game show until I make traffic from Orchard Park back to uh, the North Towns. All right, man. Good stuff. Talk to you soon. Thanks, man. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for another episode. Big thank you again, John Scott from Spectrum Sports in Buffalo. Also to Aaron Quinn from Cover One. Coming up on the show Friday, I'm going to have both Nick and Nolan from the Nick and Nolan Show, a very popular Buffalo Bills podcast on the Buffalo Rumblings Network. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to. I look forward every Wednesday to that coming out. Anyway, I'm going to have both those guys on the podcast sit down with them. Find out a lot more about them, about their podcast, and of course, plenty of Buffalo Bills talk as well. Guys, if you haven't done so already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. When you subscribe, you're going to get new episodes before anyone else does. we got new shows every Tuesday and every Friday, and you can find us, of course, on Apple, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. Also, rate and review the podcast. Only takes a couple seconds. Really helps me continue to grow this show. On the YouTube side, go to Moranalytics Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Besides highlight clips from current and past episodes of this podcast you're listening to right now, we also 
have plenty of original audio content, stuff that I do exclusively for YouTube. Not going to hear it anywhere else, including this podcast again. That's Analytics Podcast on YouTube. And then last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at PatMoranTweets. I'm constantly tweeting out podcast updates, upcoming guest polls, all kinds of other stuff, including actually podcast contest giveaways. Now, in fact, we got one going on this week. Go to my Twitter. Again, it's at PatMoranTweets. And you can just hit a retweet button and have a chance to win a free double order wings and a large pizza from Macy's Place Pizzeria. One of my favorite places in Western New York. Absolutely awesome food. So if you're in that Western New York area, go to my Twitter, hit that retweet button on that tweet. Get in on that. I'm going to be doing plenty of contests in the upcoming weeks as well. Thanks again for listening. I say it all the time. I really mean it. I truly appreciate each and every single one of you that take time from your day to give this podcast a listen. It means the world to me. So thanks again. Have a good week. Nick and Nolan coming up on Friday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.